0: Getting out of an abusive relationship early makes a huge difference. And I'm proud to say I did come in as a victim, but I am a survivor.
1: Then I could see my mom. My mom was walking toward us
0: and I got excited. And I was like, there's my mom. And then he didn't stop. I'm trying to keep it together, I said. I gave in to the tears. And I hated that.
1: It, it's not necessarily the easiest process. It's not necessarily the prettiest process, but it is the most effective process. Like, you can do this. I'm going to tell you 100% you can do this, and you're so worth it to do this.
0: I'm sure losing any child is, is a real arrow through your heart. But, but uh, you know, she was, she was great. She was a, a, a friend and a family member and our daughter.
1: It feels just as good the 10th time as it did the first time, uh, to have one of your citizens that you're out there protecting walk up and tell you thank you.
0: There is one thing stronger in me than fear, and that's my determination. Welcome. This is Jen Lee with the I Need Blue podcast. Thank you for joining us today for episode 13. My guest is Asia. She is a fellow podcaster, and if you follow my podcast, you will know she was my guest from my last episode. Now, if you haven't listened to episode 12, Surviving Satanic Ritual Abuse, now is your chance before we get started. There are several trigger warnings associated with that episode. Check out her story and all of my guest stories on my website, www.ineedblue.net. Also, Asia's podcast, Letters to the People, she wants to tell you more about it. The focus today will be being raised in a family within an environment which included such things as drug abuse, satanic abuse, gruesome rituals, sexual and mental abuse. Asia was born into this environment. She knew nothing different until she fell into depression and sought help from a psychotherapist. Asia, good morning, and thank you for returning to share different aspects of your upbringing and to answer more questions. Thank you so much for inviting me back. I'm excited to be here, Jen. Oh, you're so welcome. So did you get enough coffee this morning? I yeah. Yes, I did. I've got my coffee. I have my water and I'm all ready
1: to have a wonderful conversation with you.
0: Okay, perfect. Because Asia's a couple hours before me. So uh, she's doing this a little earlier in the morning. But yeah, we both have our mm-hmm. had our coffee, so now we're ready to go. Today's episode will contain trigger warnings. Uh, Any episode of I Need Blue can contain graphic and disturbing details, so please seek help if you need it. Turn the episode off. Whatever you need, Uh, you come number one. Before I start with the questions, can you explain, because I have some confusion myself, the difference Mm -hmm. between the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon Church, and the fundamentalist Mormons?
1: Oh, that is such a good question because most, there's a lot of people that have that same question running around. They don't know the difference. So the Mormon church, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the LDS church, it is all the same entity. It's all the same corporation. It's all the same um, community and people, that kind of thing. Uh, LDS church, the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon church. Back then they were known as the LDS church. The LDS church publicly renounced the practice of polygamy. So back in 1890, they said, okay, we are no longer going to practice polygamy. But it never renounced polygamy as a doctrine. And in the LDS scriptures, that is actually part of the the scriptural context. So where the break happened was back in 1890. So what happened was the leaders of the church said to the government of the the United States, we will no longer practice polygamy, but they never took it out of the can and they never took it out of the practice as far as what they taught. they It just shifted into, you know, when you die and go to heaven, then um, there will be, every man will, will be able to have multiple wives. So they've kept it in that kind of spiritual context. But then what happened where there were other people that broke away from the church that did not agree with that decision, and felt that it was um, God's true doctrine and true direction to have and practice polygamy. So they dispersed themselves and created what was called the fundamental fundamental LDS church. Mm -hmm. So they were keeping with the fundamental principles. So the Mormon church is not the fundamentalist church. The Mormon church does not practice polygamy the LDS church is not the fundamentalist church and it doesn't practice polygamy. So when you see um like the missionaries from the Mormon church or missionaries from the LDS church come around with the name tags on their shirts and they're knocking yes. on your doors to be proselyting, that's the Mormon church. That's the church I grew up in. I actually have um I've got children. I have I have five boys and a daughter and every all five of my boys went on LDS missions. They were those guys that were knocking on the doors and had the little name tags and you know um dedicated a, two years of their lives to to doing that to actually educating people and trying to convert people uh to the LDS religion. Um so on letters to the people podcast um and you can go to letters to the people.com and it is I think it's episode 2 or episode 3 Um, I'm interviewing Chris and Atra and we talk about that. So people can listen to that if they want. I want people to know that what I grew up in and what I was trained by was not the fundamentalist church. I was in the, and a member of, and born into the religion. Um, that is the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is the Mormon church.
0: I want to talk a little bit about, um, dating. Okay. and marriage and how that works in your community? Mhm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, um in in the
1: I was encouraged as a uh, as a Mormon girl, as a as a member of that congregation to date only Mormon boys because the purpose of dating was to really lead you into getting married. So it was not encouraged um to date outside the religion because that would risk, you know, keeping the religion going, keeping, you know, like having the family be um, in a cohesive family unit that has the the religion that you've been used to or that you've been raised in. My dating experiences were in Texas and Wyoming where there weren't a lot of Mormons. And so I, I was, and I wasn't like that. Not that I was attracted to anybody, any of the Mormon boys that were there. I mean, I, in Wyoming, I think there was like, I think there were five of us. I think there were three guys and a couple of girls. I mean, that just, you know, automatically takes, Uh takes the, the, takes it off the board for me. And the the boys that I dated were, um, were not Mormon. I I was very involved with um, one, one guy that was a Catholic and one guy that was Lutheran and um, that was kind of a heartbreak over one, one particular guy that I was really, really, really loved him. I really loved, you know, like I wanted to see if that could go further and I never, I, it, I'd never allowed it to do anything beyond that. He even reached out to me after high school when I was in college a couple of times and I, it terrified me because I was like, I knew inside, I really, I really did like this guy, but I was dating this other Mormon guy and that was just going to cause all kinds of problems. Right. So Uh, the religious training about um, morality and sexual purity and all of that really came in strong. And so um, in my mind, and this is kind of a funny thing, but in my mind, I was a virgin until I got married. Although all of this raping and all of this incest and all of this stuff was going on in in my world and my body was showing signs of that, my my mind was never; it wasn't registering it because I had repressed all of that, and it had been conditioned to be put away. So, I knew myself as a good girl, as a virgin, as a uh, clean vessel for the guy that I ended up marrying. I didn't choose into um, sexual activity while I was in high school um, or in college. Um, I got married when I was twenty-one. Well, I was two weeks shy of being twenty-one. I like to say I was twenty-one, but I got married. Officially when I was 20 and two weeks later, I turned 21. So it was fairly young. When it got to the point to date my husband, that's when it got a little bit different for me. Um, but I had come home from college and and the, the setups, I can look back on it now and I can start sh- seeing the setups. But there was, we had an arranged marriage, but I didn't know mentally, I did, I, wasn't, I didn't know that this was getting arranged. It, it was framed in a way that I I thought it was my choice. And, you know, thinking about this, I was 19, 20 years old and I had had 19 or 20 years of um, conditioning that had been happening with my dad as my handler and, you know, like just the setups that were fairly smooth and easy for him anyway that I wouldn't have noticed these things, but I came home and I remember on the kitchen counter was the, the news, the local newspaper. And it was opened up in the middle and kind of folded over to this one page where it had the picture of what, you know, um, was going to be my husband, but had the, has had his picture in there because he was coming home from a Mormon mission. He had just come home from an LDS mission and he was going to be, Speaking to his congregation, kind of reporting to them about his experiences on his mission, which is very common and I noticed it, and it had been there for a couple of days and I thought well that's that's a little weird and so then I went over and i and I kind of looked at it and um my dad noticed that I was looking at it, and he goes yeah this uh that's my that's our bishop's brother, so this the bishop is the like the pastor of the congregation." And so there was a, a relationship there where um, the pastor of my parents' congregation was the brother to this missionary that was coming home. And I thought, oh, really? And he goes, he said, yeah. And so um, it it was kind of this directional thing, like, check this out. Look at this. I keyed into pleasing my dad. Like, that was really an emotional trigger for me to please this man that inside I was terrified of, but I didn't know I was terrified of him. You know, I had to balance that out with this adoration. So, I keyed into that, and I I kind of started looking into that. And then, out of the blue, I get a phone call from um, another relative of of my future husband. But when you get into this organized grooming, this is why I'm bringing this up. Then I was introduced to him another way, and another way, and it was just kind of this thing that. I could call it serendipity, but I can look back on it now and say, no, this was organized. I can see how this was organized. Mm -hmm. So then we started dating and um, marriage started just popping up as a, as a thing. Now I I will say we did get along. We got along famously. I, I, you know, so I was, I was good with it until I wasn't. And there was this moment in time where I could see that my parents didn't get along very well. And my mom was, raised on a dairy farm. My dad was from LA and I'm like, I don't know how you two ever got together. Like where, where did that come from? Right. He used to be, my dad was a a concert pianist and and he was like a a lifeguard on the beach, you know, you know, in LA, like he was surfer boy. And my mom was this dairy farmer, you know, my parents' marriage was not one I wanted. And so what I was seeing was I was dating this guy that was very much coming from a background that was very farm oriented, not that I didn't love the farm, but his, his goals in life were not what my goals in life were. And um, they were the only, what I was seeing really is the only commonality that we had was the, the church and everything else was falling apart. And I thought, well, gosh, you know, life is a little bit more than that. So I, I basically broke it off. And this is where the reason I'm bringing this up is I broke it off. And then two weeks later, because what happened was it wasn't, I didn't just break off a dating thing. I had actually, he had actually proposed and I had actually said, yeah, I wasn't saying yes, like with my whole heart, but it just felt like something, like what I should do. So there was grooming behind that. And so then I broke off the engagement. And then two weeks later, I had so much anxiety around it. that I came back to him and I said, I, I, yeah, no, I, I want to get married again. Well, what happened as I went back and I got my memories, you know, and this is, Years and years later, what what actually happened was when my dad found out that I broke that off, he created a um, a ceremony and some punishment around this that was really horrendous.
0: Trigger warning: graphic content.
1: In in the house that we were living in, um, the basement was unfinished, and it was we were my my parents were actually. Um, Starting to do some construction down there, there was a space between the cement and the two by fours. you know how you have that so you can put up the the drywall where you could build the walls. There was a space that had been built out just enough that he could shut me in it and so he actually shut me in into the wall and and um you know screwed it shut so really there was enough room for me to um really just stand. And it was wide enough that, you know, I, I was kind of flat against the wall. So it was, it was extremely uncomfortable. And, um, the time that he, while I was in there, he left enough room at the top that, um, that he could do some things like I could hear him. I had been drugged, so I was there, but I wasn't there, but then, um, he would put like, he got some, got some beetles, some spiders. He would drop them in there. And then I don't remember if there was a snake that got dropped in there at one point, but I couldn't do anything about it because I couldn't move my arms or anything. This happened for a number of days. Then he, I would come out and, and then he would put me back in. And you got to understand that the, the way this was possible was because of the substance that was either in my food or, I got injected a lot. He did actually have um, access to syringes and drugs and needles and things like that. So um it was not it was not a hard thing for this to actually happen for multiple days. And in between there would I would end up having um a lot of um physical abuse um and some sexual abuse and then there would be some other things that were happening, you know, mentally also that were that was being told to me. So This wasn't the first time this had happened to me. I was now nineteen, right, and I had been inducted into this kind of treatment, you know, since I was three years old. So this, there were definitely words that could be said, triggers that could be done, and things that he could replay and to call up other traumas um, that were very, very effective in. In conditioning. And it was basically all about, you're not, you know, you will marry this boy. This is what you're going to do. And, um, I did, I had no choice, but when I came out of that trauma, right, I'm not under the influence of a substance or a drug. The thoughts of not marrying him started to create this really huge anxiety. And that's when I I had to come back to him and say, I, I, I was wrong. I'm sorry. So and there's a bigger story behind the setup that that setup or that thing I just explained was the reason I came back to and said yes to it. Why I, why I said no to my own desires and I said yes to something that really was being designed. And I thought it was my own choice Um, based on lineage and, and who I was interacting with, with the leadership of the church and who my ex-husband was, um, you know, what his bloodline is from. There was some real design. They were trying to create a a designer family and they succeeded, you know, until I started getting my memories and then I broke away from all of it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So what was your marriage like and, um, how soon did you have kids?
1: So we had kids within, you know, like uh, two years after we were married is when we had our first baby. And then I had children, I had six children total. And so I basically had children every 2 years. So my kids are all about 2 years apart. Um that I did willingly. I I but it wasn't necessarily a conscious creation. It was just like, oh, well, that seems like a good thing to do and that fits the time frame and this is what, you know, I even had the thought that his he had brothers that were married and they were starting to have kids and I and the thought was, well, I mean, you know, we're always going to be with the family. We might as well start having kids too so they can have cousins to play with. Like mm-hmm. the way I look at it now, that would not be a factor. I would be going, am I, am I emotionally ready? Am I, am I in a space where I want to create a, a human life? You know, like I would, I, I would take it so much differently than the way the society and the culture that I was a part of was creating it to be. I feel like our marriage was really a good marriage for the first 14 years. And I, my ex-husband was, would agree with me on that. Um, our marriage started to have a bit of a breakdown because of some things that I felt were dissatisfactory. And I, there were some other things going on in the cult, on the cult side of things that I was unaware of that were also affecting it. And so I started thinking that I had something wrong with me and my ex-husband started thinking that I was right. You know, he's like, "Oh, I'm happy. I don't know what the problem is. It's it's you." Um, and we went that you know went on with that for another few years um, until until I really did have the massive breakdown in 2003 and went looking uh, for some help from a from a psychotherapist because of the depression. To really be kind to myself and to my ex husband, we married each other in a particular mindset. We stayed in that mindset for a number of years and then my internal system started to rebel and, you know, recognizing that my my ex-husband and I were no longer a match. He was still in the same space that he had been for many years and he was comfortable there and it, nothing else made sense to him. And so in a very honest and kind way, it's like, well, I have evolved and I, I am now different and you... I am not the person you married, and and this is not going to work anymore. And so that's kind of the gentle way to put
0: <laughs> the
1: volatility that was behind all
0: of that, you know? You were younger, you were inducted at age five. And mm-hmm. sex was very much used as a tool, like by your father and whatnot.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: did that similar activity happen with like your husband and your kids? Now I know your mom you felt was just she wasn't around so she wasn't really aware of mm-hmm. everything that was going on in regards to your situation was it similar mm-hmm. for you or different so
1: the my my husband let's see how do i want to put this in in the in the ritual community there are handlers you know that are basically perpetrators and, um, and there are those that are, you know, designing, um, and leaders, gosh, I mean, they make money off of it. They, they, they benefit from it in a lot of ways. My husband was not one of those people. And as far as I know, and as far as my memories really kind of allowed me to see, he was not going to be one of those people. He was more, um, on the victim side of stuff. So he was, um, um, being used or being accessed if they chose to use or access him. Um, The kids, it was the offspring that they were really interested in because as soon as they can get um, a family that's been put together in the cult, both parents are now – unaware that this other part, you know, they, they have, they've repressed their memories, but it's easy enough to make a phone call and say, Hey, come on down for um, dinner. We thought it'd be fun to have your family over. Um, and while, uh, you know, while you're helping me in the kitchen, then, uh, we're going to have the boys go out on the farm and then, um, grandpa's going to take the grandkids and do a thing, you know? And so it just sounds like this great family activity, but what grandpa's taking the kids to go do is, horrendous, you know, Mm -hmm. and, and it's, it's going to be a couple of hours because he's got to drive them up and there's a special place in, you know, on the, on out here that, you know, he's made for them or whatever, you know, and there's other guys waiting for it. It, It's a designed thing. And so it wouldn't occur to me as the mother to even question that it wouldn't occur to my ex-husband as the father to question that. So that makes the children easy prey because we don't question, you know, we're not going to look at that as a bad idea um and then if we do start wondering or like i say hey that sounds like fun for me then it, i'm easily distracted or easily triggered myself because they know what my triggers are and so i can be numbed out or i can be you know they're whatever they want to do to get me out of the way or or the dad out of the way part of just continuing this this uh the access to the young ones and then again i want to bring up the fact that it's not just about the pedophilia it's not just about the children um it's about maintaining control over people until they die so no my husband was not a part of that and no my husband as far as i know and as far as any reports that i got from my children he never acted out on my kids so my kids any sexual abuse that happened to them was happening through grandparents or or other other um, people, um, but not through me and not through my husband. And I can say that with a lot of confidence because I was very thorough in my memory recovery. I got to a point where I was like, oh my gosh, if I've hurt my kids, I better see this. Like I I am not going to pretend that, that something could have, you know, not, or, you know, I'm not going to pretend something didn't happen. I want to see if something did happen. I did not see myself consciously acting out on my kids. I did see a couple of times where I was present when things were happening to my kids, but I was also um so drugged it was almost I was almost catatonic. What the perpetrators or the the satanists could say to the kids is like, you know, look at your mom, she doesn't even care. Like why would she let us do that? Like what kind of mother would allow this kind of thing to happen to you? So they were, it's a, it's a verbal um, trauma that is designed to drive the child away from the mother so that they do not feel safe from the mother or, or the, or the father, you know, whoever's in that room. So to get back to your question, sex um, is definitely a tool. It was, it was a tool for trauma. It was a tool to drive, um, and trigger me into, um, old traumatic spaces to make me easier to control incest from my father was there. I, I, even other family members, it was there and also trafficking. So the sex was used, like I was sold, um, to other men, um, for money and for favors and to be part of ceremonies. Um, those deals were taken care of not just with my dad, but with grandparents as well. And so I can, although I don't have my children's memories, right, they're their they're stories, um, they have indicated that some similar things, a few of them have indicated that they had some memories with some similar things happening to them too, where um, deals were made around them being the commodity. I had been, you know, conveniently um, distracted, that kind of thing.
0: That was a tough question to ask, uh, to yeah. be honest with you as a, as a parent and especially yeah. as a mom, I have to imagine mm-hmm. that no matter how drugged you are, you have this instinct built an instinct to protect
1: yeah that that's actually something i um, I did once I realized how how um, out of your mind you can be meaning not present, and how designer how thorough and practiced um, that whole system is. And I even asked my kids too. I even said, you know, if, if you ever see me in any of your therapy acting out on you or doing anything to you, you need to believe it because you need to get the details and see if it really was me. Because a lot of times you're in such a terrified state that they say that somebody's there. It's like, Oh, well, this is who's really, you know, this is doing this to you. Um, just to kind of, to throw you right. So you have to be mm-hmm. thorough and do what I did, which is keep going into the memory and going into the memory. You have to go into, it's not just like, oh gosh, yeah, there, there was rape there. I, I Yeah, I don't want to look at that. It was like, okay, body needs to feel this. Mind needs to experience this and I need to see who's doing it and I need to get the details of what I was feeling. And I got really thorough and that's why the healing was so thorough. People that have, after we've had this conversation, say to me, you know what, I I know you and I know that this is not something you would ever make up and I trust you, but I have a really hard time with what you're telling me. I have a really hard time with this story because I don't understand, since it is as bad as you're saying it is, why are you not rocking in the corner somewhere? Why are you not on med- medications? Why are you not Uh, dysfunctional? Why are, why, how is it that you can actually talk about this and not be so triggered that you, you fall apart and, and not be able to, you know, even, even talk to anybody. Two particular people I'm thinking of, I was really devastated because I, it's not that I was necessarily counting on them believing me, but I was, I was devastated with the fact that I had just I had spent, and they—they they, neither of them knew me prior to my healing process and being in therapy. And so what I was looking at is, oh my gosh, I spent eight and a half years in therapy, recovering these memories, going through a therapeutic process, really being dysfunctional in so many ways, barely being able to um, function some days, and, and other days just pushing through almost On a on an automatic basis, taking care of six children, still working, like doing civic functions, you know, being a wife, running a household. I mean, there were things that I was still doing while I was doing my healing, and that journey of healing was not just recovering memories so I knew what happened to me, but because those emotions are trapped inside, because those experiences. Still reside in my body, or did reside in my body. My therapy allowed that to all that trauma to be expressed and to be released because of the extent of the trauma that I lived and the extent of the healing that I did. I'm in a place that I can now talk about it and not be triggered and not be over the top crying about it. Now, it's not to say that I don't get triggered and it's not to say that I don't have emotion about it because I do. There are, I I have had triggering moments and I have had emotional, very emotional times about it too. But it was devastating to me to to actually hear that the feedback was, "Wow, you're just so well adjusted that I have a hard time believing you." You know. Um that was tough. Yeah.
0: Is it uh fair to say that therapy is not meant to be easy? Therapy takes work. Uh, It takes Mm -hmm. work and it takes dedication. And perhaps to someone who has never been through it, or maybe they went to the wrong therapist who just told them what they want to hear, they may not Mm -hmm. understand. But it is Mm -hmm. hard work. It's emotional. It's finding strength inside yourself that you didn't even know existed. And it's finding a support system. And maybe you have to let go of some friends at that time Mm -hmm. and maybe you make new friends so it it's life-changing what you went through to get to where you are today is completely life-changing but you had the courage the dedication and that's amazing you should be proud of yourself just in thank you in itself Yeah, no, thank you
1: for saying that. Everything you just said is exactly what um, I experienced as well. I did lose friends. I did, um, I had to pull in and really conserve my energy because that energy was being so consumed by, you know, recovering, um, not just recovering the memories, but healing from what was going on. And, and life still goes on as people know. So it, it has been, it was it was, it, it was hard work. It really was. And it was something that when I did have my wins, I really celebrated. And um, those celebrations were more like sitting in awe of myself of what had just happened and recognizing that I wasn't behaving in particular ways anymore, which blew my mind. I just thought it was my per- part of my personality to, you know, kind of conduct myself in particular ways. and And they were harmful. They were, you know, there were things i didn't like about myself and suddenly i'm getting memories pulled up and i'm experiencing i'm experiencing a freedom inside like a almost like a there's room inside of me you know i could kind of breathe a little deeper or something and mm-hmm. and that was really profound
0: how did they recruit from outside the community
1: Mm, see, now that's going to be something that I know would have been even more um, sinister. I don't want to say more sinister. There, there's a whole different method of recruiting that has a lot to do with blackmail. And it it wasn't my primary experience because I was born into this. So I didn't really witness the, um, the recruitment. I wasn't sent out to recruit anybody. I was already, I was birthing it right you know I was bringing that into and it's so much easier to have access to young children and and get that whole um conditioning process going because you've got free access anytime than it is to um really recruit people however it does happen and you're an older more established individual Uh, you'll be befriended. They'll start developing relationships with somebody they want to recruit. And typically it's very underhanded. It's like, Hey, come to me, come to this party with me or, or something like that. And times where people show up thinking they're going to be there. And right in front of them is this horrendous scene. It's kind of, they just walk into this room and there it is. And now they're a witness. They've, They've been at the party for a little while, so they've been touching, you know, glasses and and uh, silverware or whatever. And um, somebody might just you know, randomly hand them a book or or something. And then later in the day or in the evening, the person that they would you know really want to be close to and they've already figured out who this is would actually come up to them and say, "Hey, come here." something I wanted to show you or something I want to talk to you about or whatever, or could you give me a hand with this or whatever? And then you walk into this situation where you're, you're witnessing a child being raped or something was, there's blood all over the place. Something was just killed. Someone was just sacrificed, whatever. And, and they're standing there with the candlestick that you would just hand, you know, held. And they're like, your fingerprints are on this. Right. Or it's clear you've been here the whole time and there've been cameras everywhere. And, you know, And this activity is going on. So, so somehow it is really well designed and well enough to know what their, their pain point is. Is it going to be their bank account? Is it the relationship? Is it whatever they, um, this is really common to um, entice um, people into sexual relationships with kids or, or prostitutes or other women or whatever. And they they just they fall into it. And so now they've got evidence just with somebody making a bad choice or a choice that they normally wouldn't in other circumstances. So that is one way that people get recruited and kind of feel coerced to stay in there. My, my dad, because my dad was a victim too. His, his parents were involved, right? It just, it's a generational thing. At what point did my dad decide that he wanted to be an active member of that group? versus being just accessed or being a a, uh, a victim of that group. Either way, you're a victim, but somehow he was choosing into some kind of power with that. And I, I don't have an answer to that question because I don't know what would tip a person over into saying, yes, I like this track. Yes, I want that power. Yes, I want that money. Yes, I, I have that bloodlust. I don't know. I don't know what that looks like.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting question. Have they ever kidnapped anybody that they wanted to become part of the cult? Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. I, kidnapping
1: is part of it. I know that there's, um, well, yeah, Shoes. there are different access points, um, all over the United States where, um, you know, a child to go missing, um, and, and those milk carton, you know, faces where it used to be that they would, you know, the missing children kind of thing. Um, Sometimes, many times they're picked up for sacrifice. those children are not coming back, or they've been sold into human trafficking things, so yes, that is part of it because it's not just satanic ritual abuse, it's not just satanic blood cult abuse it is it's human trafficking, and it's not just child trafficking it is it is human trafficking, you know, so people go disappearing like that for sure, yes, I've witnessed times where they use the homeless population a lot, wow, so somebody, you know, it's, it's easy to make friends with somebody in the homeless community and entice them to say, Hey, you know, I just need you to do a couple things for me. I'll, you know, we'll put you up in a room, whatever. And, you know, give you, you can have a shower, whatever. So, um, I, I was, I was the victim of one of those where, um, they had hired, hired, quote unquote, a homeless man to play the role of Jesus. Um, trying to drown me. And this is a very common one. So this is another, you know, like trigger things. So his role, what they paid him to do was to dress up like Jesus. And then any, any child, and in this case, it was me, the child that was in there, he's to quote unquote, baptize them, but he was holding my head underwater and taking me to the point of drowning. And there were other men standing there. And one of them was a doctor, a very well-known doctor in this, in this, uh, And right, I mean, it was kind of like they were timing and watching my body. So right before I was about to, you know, like drowned, then he pulled my head out of the water, right? So this was going on. So my torture was happening and this homeless individual was just doing it until it got to the point where another individual who played Satan, dressed as Satan, came in and stopped what was going on so he quote unquote satan rescued me from jesus from jesus killing me and they you know i i had kind of come back into consciousness so that i could see this scene play out where satan came in said the words that he was saying you know created the the scene and and i am more powerful than you you know the the whole kind of thing and it was really clear who was who And, um, the homeless man had been kind of coached on what he was supposed to do. And I think he was just, I don't know if he was told that it was a filming thing or if it was actually being filmed and he was, um, given lines or whatever. But the whole thing was, there was a bit of a, of a pushback, a bit of a battle going on. And Satan basically just, he pulled out a gun and shot the guy in front of me. Like it was, it was, it was a murder right there. And me as the as the child watching that it it was really driving in even with the 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 lo- now noise of the of the shotgun you know that's going to be jarring right being tortured by almost drowning that's jarring and then in comes this this entity that is quote unquote saving you by murdering somebody and all of a sudden when they turn to you and they say you know who's your savior now? Or they say, you know, who's all powerful? And, and you're kind of like, wow, well, clearly it's not Jesus. You know what I'm saying? So a lot of that driving against who really has the power and who do you really believe in and who are you going to call out to? Homeless population, that's an easy one. Nobody's going to know. There's no, they don't have to keep track of any bodies or anything like that. So um, that's also a population they access. Yeah.
0: You must come across a lot of people who hear your story and just find it unbelievable or hard to listen to.
1: I do know that there are people that don't, I mean, a lot of people do not want to think this is, this is a real thing. It's, it's it's very hard for your mind to wrap around the fact that this is going on and you don't know about it yes and our first as humans when something is offensive that we notice or that we've been exposed to then the first thing we do is we look around to see what we can blame or who we can blame or where we can point the finger so that we can offload it right and so this is such a big thing that it would be really um tempting to just kind of grab it and say, "You know, oh well, this is all about the Mormons. this is all about that 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 really weird church and and it's not it's bigger than this church it's bigger it's bigger, bigger bigger these it's it's a it's an entity and a system in and of itself that has infected all of the systems that we hope are honest
0: so you have been out since two thousand and six. I know one of Mm -hmm. the reasons you started your podcast was to create awareness, to open the door to this heinous activity. What results are you looking for? Uh, Why hasn't it already happened? And what needs to happen to get the result that you are looking for?
1: I feel like you empower people by giving them information and you empower people by allowing the conversations to happen and allowing victims the room to not feel shamed and not feel crazy. So my goal has been to bring out awareness. My goal has been to validate victims and help them really not feel crazy. I've had, I have just recently had a, a couple of people reach out and one of them just said, I, I just, I just need to know I'm not crazy. And the other one was like, I super need validation is what her quote was. I just, I need to know I need to know that I, this, I'm not making this up. You have to work through as a victim, just your own version of, oh my God, this happened to me. And oh my God, what does that mean? So I want to validate victims and let them know they're not crazy. The other thing that I have a lot of people ask is, you know, um, what, what has been your experience with going to the police Uh, or what kind of justice are you seeking? And my answer to that is the interaction I've had with, with the one detective I I talked to was he was one of the first people. He was like, you're, you're way too well functioning. I, I, I want to believe what you're saying. And I, I do because I know you, but you're really, you're a high functioning individual with what this is and where's the proof. Right. So the justice system, I want people to actually really label it correctly. It's a criminal justice system. It's not a justice system. So it's set up to defend the criminal. And so for me as the victim, having to produce evidence that was happening to me when I was in an altered state and typically naked is not going to be really something that I can actually Come home with. You were like, even if I got blood under my fingernails by fighting back, which happened, even if I pulled the hair of somebody and had that, you know, somewhere under my fingernails, which happened, right? I was still cleaned up because I had to go home. Like, it wasn't my mom cleaning me up. It was the women that were there that were part of the ceremony that were cleaning me up and all the other children up. So they're getting rid of evidence, first of all, right? If I was beaten, they utilized things that were not going to be too bruising. So the bruising is all internal, right? Even even the raping, like there are there are victims that are walking around with very severe medical problems especially with sexual organs, you know, and um even their lower GI tract. Like there are some severe severe cases of that and they don't know why or where that's come from, right? But they have a recourse to go into say the medical community and kind of get some treatment. And that could be, but they still, even with something like that, you still have to have, you have to have evidence. And so what the criminal justice system is requiring is something that victims really can't readily come up with. Then you add on top statute of limitations, if whatever the statutes are and the fact that the way a victim is going to tell a story is going to be fairly full of trauma and might be a little bit broken up. Interviewers um, don't really have a lot of training, the justice system, and even with the um, the law enforcement in how they handle these things. So my goal is not necessarily to jump in and find an attorney to fight a church that's got over $100 billion in one investment account. I, I, you know, my desire is to heal myself and then to help others heal, and to help others feel empowered, and eventually, what happens is people feel empowered enough that they look around them and they say, "That doesn't make sense to me. Why would I pay the church ten percent? Why would I give them my money? Why would I give them my time? Why would I go out and proselyte like that? Doesn't it makes more sense to me to actually hold family time or you know contribute to my community in these other ways, where they have their own their own ideas of what is creatively." Um, empowering themselves and their community versus a church or a government system or anything else saying, this is what you have to do. And so then we obedient, obediently follow, you know, as they herd us into what they want us to be doing. So for me to actually go to the justice system and say, this happened to me and I want you to make me feel better is crazy because the church in this area owns the justice system and the justice system in other states is in on this anyway. Like there are members of, of the government, of the, you know, of all of this in every single state that are active satanic cult members that are going to make sure that your story as a victim is not going to get reported or that your paperwork or your case gets lost. Mm -hmm. It's a criminal justice system and they are already set up to funnel this in a particular way. So, Yes, I do believe there's going to be justice. Yes, I do believe that as thousands and thousands of voices come together, that it is going to be so hard to ignore that justice does happen. But for me to champion this in and kind of face the dragon, I am going to turn away from it and I'm going to turn to the people that it is hypnotically controlling. Help empower the people to have their own version of sovereignty and and uh, creative power. And eventually, what happens is we starve the beast. They stop feeding it their money. They stop feeding it their time. They stop feeding it themselves. And that to me is justice.
0: Another way people can have power over themselves and and start to heal is through forgiveness. So can you talk Mm -hmm. about um, forgiveness in your situation? And then I'm curious as to how is your relationship with God now?
1: I will say that my relationship with God is a very powerful relationship. I even through all of this I had some really um divine angelic experiences. So even while I was in the midst of actively being tortured or or hurt as I was recovering memories, I also got to see in addition to the really ugly bloody side there were times I did see angels there. There were times I did see something of the divine there. Believe it or not, I saw angels escorting the 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 children that had just been killed or the the person that had just been sacrificed. I saw angels there with that soul moving them into some place that i 'm assuming heaven i don 't know, but moving them into a different like going taking them away and and you know just kind of helping them out of that. That was a really sustaining, beautiful thing. And then, as I was in my recovery of memories and um, in that healing process of therapy, there were times that I actually were I was able to have um, very spiritual experiences where I felt like God was actually right next to me. Where I felt like I was being shown things from a divine source that that I, I can't deny, you know, and those kinds of experiences for me can't be duplicated. It's not just a hope in my heart and it's not just uh, blind faith. Although I do really love the human capacity to have hope and to practice faith, but these were very real tangible experiences for me. So my relationship with God is really solid. I know there's a lot of people that say, I can't believe in God because I can't believe that God would allow these things to happen. And, and I'm here to say, well, God, God was present and angels were present while this was happening. The whole reason as to why I'm not privy to, I don't, I can't. And even if I knew the answer, if I was going to answer that person that was like, I can't believe in God, they're not far enough along for my answer to even be satisfactory yet. So they get to have that journey. As far as forgiveness goes, forgiveness has been a very interesting journey. Um, I can honestly say I am on the side of forgiveness where I can look with compassion upon the people that are doing this. It doesn't mean I'm looking at them with um, support or with approval or anything else like that. What I'm saying is like my heart has has compassion because the way I look at it is you, in order to do what they, what I watched happen, what they did to me, you have to be so, so vacant, so far separated from yourself. It's almost like the real you is standing on one side of the Grand Canyon and the part of you that's acting out and doing all this other stuff is on the other side of the Grand Canyon. And there's really no way of reaching, of one reaching the other. And that, makes my heart sad to to know that there is a human that is that out of touch with themselves, with their humanness. But the part of the forgiveness that works really well for me is to know that I am on a place and I've been through a journey where I have in increments, I didn't have one great moment where I suddenly had this, oh, I forgive all of you. The more I learned to love myself and the more I released what was going on there, forgiveness, as a word, naturally came forward. And from a really strange vantage point, I can look at them and I can look at that and I can go, all right, I see what this is, I see what you've done, and I'm not going to harbor any of that energy inside of me anymore and to me i guess that is is a forgiveness i am forgiving i'm forgiving all of that by not holding on to it as part of me anymore
0: thank you for sharing that and your words will make a difference they absolutely will thank you thank you thank you I
1: appreciate that. That that oh, warms my heart. <laughs> absolutely. Now, tell us about your
0: podcast, Asia.
1: The podcast I'm really excited about. I have um, a couple of interviews where I'm going to be interviewing um, some victims coming up, um, and I'm I'm going to be offering more and more of my story. And so, um, as people tune into that, and as it starts to gain some momentum, um, you'll be able to hear more of what my individual individual, um, memories were. And so I want to present them to everybody as, as letters from me to the people of, of what happened to me. And so that's going to be going on in a series. Um, and that's, that's about to begin. I
0: love um,
1: that. the, I, I was thinking that maybe that felt really honest because I want that to encourage people to write their own letters, whether they write it to themselves or whether they write it to somebody that they, um, need to forgive or to their own perpetrators or whatever that is it is so healing to get this out of you and typically putting it on paper really makes it a real thing you know and just even the motion of writing using your hands to write that is also a very cathartic healing action and so i want to kind of lead by example in that way but the um, the website is letters to the people.com and that's where all of the episodes are Right now you can find Letters to the People podcast out on um, Spotify, accepting um, letters. If you want to send any letters uh, that you want received um, or that you want to share, uh, you can certainly do that. And you can send it um, as an email to info.letters to the people at protonmail.com. And there's also an address on my website that's on our contact Page that you can send uh, a letter to if you want to physically send a letter. Um, I will, I do want to interview people if you've got an experience that's similar to this. Um, I am taking applications for that. But I think the more and more that we are able to, um, I want to say, normalize this, you know, just let, just know that this is a very honest, real thing that's happening. Um, We can have those conversations from a compassionate manner. Um I think that really helps heal humanity. I have a blog also on um on my website. I've also got an Instagram account and you can follow me there. I would love that and I'll start putting up the the episodes on the Insta- Instagram account as well. So and there's also a Facebook page you can find letters to the people on Facebook as well. So there's a lot of ways to contact and reach out and follow and see what's going on. And I'd eventually like to develop it into something where um, with the contributions that come in, I can support other victims by giving them scholarship that They can continue with their healing um, in ways that are healthy and, and viable for them. So I would love to see this get to a, an extent where it is giving back to um, victims that have been um, affected by satanic ritual abuse, by human trafficking, by cult abuse, by mind control, and human experimentation, all of which I have experienced myself. So. Anything else you want to add today? Thank you for giving me some um, time to communicate and to be here and to talk with you. Thank you for the questions that you've asked. They um, give a really nice, solid base to some of the things that people may not have really even known. And I just really enjoy talking to you. And um, thanks again for just allowing me to, to be here and spend some time with you.
0: You're so welcome, Asia. I enjoy my conversation with you too. I'm so glad that we were able to connect. I'm glad together we can uh, shed some light on your experience and everything that's going on. Um, I'm here if you need anything, just, just send me an email, whatnot. Thank you. Yeah, you're so welcome. But other than that, I'm going to sign off. This is Jen Lee with the I Need Blue podcast. Thank you for listening today. I can be found on all of your favorite podcast platforms, as well as my website, www.ineedblue.net. Also, if you want, leave a review on uh, Apple podcasts. All right. Thank you so much for listening until next time.